This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. When you walk into a shop, uh, we're heading in, you want to buy an appliance, white goods, high tech gadgets, something like that. What are you considering? What's in your mind? I mean, you're looking at price, of course. How much cash is this going to cost you? Maybe if it's a dishwasher, a washing machine, something like that, you want to consider how much water it's going to use. How energy efficient it is would be up there. Is the real cost going to creep into your power bill? Now, these are all really important things to have in your mind. But should you also be thinking about how easy it is to have it repaired? How much will the fixes cost? Who has the skills needed to make those repairs? Is it even physically possible to repair? Because yes, for some products, that is a question you need to be asking. I'm Nick Healy, and in a world where a brand new toaster might cost you 20 bucks at the shops, you might think, well, why would I repair it? I'll get a new one and just put the corpse of the old toaster into landfill. I mean, if it's something more high-tech, a smartphone, a tablet, a TV, you, you might want it repaired, but find it really hard to know where you can go to get that done. You might even run the risk of voiding your warranty if you go to the wrong place. So what governs your right to repair a product? Who decides whether that's an easy fix or something tricky? And how do you and I change our mindset in this very disposable world we live in? How do we change our mind when it comes to repairing and not just turfing it straight into the bin? Have you been given the runaround trying to get something repaired? Have you been investigating it and told it would just be cheaper to buy a whole new one rather than drop it off at the shop? Maybe there's a beloved item in your home and you're finding it really hard to get anyone who still repairs that sort of item. Really love to hear from you this morning. And the other thing I'm thinking of, when I was a kid, Dad had an old VHS player. It was one of the very old ones. It had remote connected by a big long wire. You push the tapes down at the top, weight a metric ton. But when it broke, we'd just drop it off at the local repair. It was a bloke who took care of those small appliances in town when they weren't working. And sometimes it feels like that is a lost job. Did you used to do something like that. Was that your job? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. So you'll often hear the term right to repair bandied around when we talk about topics like this. It can seem odd. I mean, you might think I own this. I bought it with my money. Of course I have the right to repair it. But Leanne Wiseman, Professor in Law at Griffith University, Chair of the Australian Repair Network, it's really not that simple, is it? No, it's not. And thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about this. It's so important. When we think about, as you say, the things that we own, why shouldn't we be able to keep them in use for longer and replace a simple bulb or a switch um, when it fails? So the right to repair is really about um, giving consumers the ability to access repair and service information um, and take their goods to be repaired by an independent repairer of their choice and not necessarily be forced to go back to the manufacturer um, as we are at present. So, Leanne, at the moment, what governs, what, what I guess controls my ability to have something repaired? Well, it's very... Um, there's quite a number of reasons. There's some physical barriers in the way in which our products are being made now. So, you, as you gave the example of a simple household appliance like a toaster or a kettle, um, 20 or 30 years ago, you'd be able to open the screws on the base of those products and open them up and, and replace whatever was faulty. Now, the way products are being designed and made is often screws aren't used, but glue is being used instead. So you aren't able to open them up or 
or disassemble them in some ways. But there's also legal restrictions. As we see smart goods um, everywhere in our homes now, our dishwashers and fridges and washing machines all have computer software in them. Once you have software embedded in a device, the manufacturers really protect their intellectual property and that software. So they really don't um, encourage you to um, go behind whatever that error code might be when something's not working. If your fridge isn't working, you'll often get an error code, but you won't know what that means unless you go back to the manufacturer. So there's legal as well as physical barriers to repairability. It, it can be a very frustrating process. I mean, especially as you said, that software element of it, as more and more devices become smart, there's a complexity to it. And it feels like there's a, a some solid design decisions being made here when it comes to what's repairable and what isn't. Yes, look, a lot of people, it, there's a question around product obsolescence as well. You know, you mentioned the fact that some goods are so um, kind of sophisticated and clever that once a simple thing fails, the whole device then becomes rendered useless. So often we can't replace a motherboard or we can't replace that software program in our dishwasher. So that whole metal big object goes into landfill, which is a really serious environmental concern. So there are issues around the way products are being designed and made. Um, in the EU, there's been a very big push that the products should be made in a way that are um, able to be disassembled and the spare parts are made to be available and reasonably priced as well. The, the reasonably pricing thing is really interesting to me because I know we see items like, um, yeah, I'm just thinking of the top of my head, so home printers, you know. Uh, there's a point there where people are saying it is literally cheaper to buy a whole new product rather than try and actually get it repaired. Well, that's very true. That whole issue of the, the cartridge, um, for mm. example, that you should be able to refill those. We've interestingly, in the last um, 12 months or so, we've had a high court decision that basically gave the green light for people to be able to um, refill those cartridges so that you can continually reuse the cartridge in a, in a printer without having to replace the whole printer. So that there is a very significant issue about ensuring that we're able to keep products that we purchase in use for longer by making the parts um, able to be, re, you know, essentially reused. You mentioned, of course, the, um, uh, I guess, um, what did you say, the intellectual property angle of it. And, Leanne, there are times when we can have something physically repaired, and I'm thinking maybe smart devices, maybe a screen or something relatively simple comparatively, um, but we might run the risk of actually voiding our warranty if we have it repaired in the wrong way. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a... a under our Australian consumer law, if there's a defect in the product, um, we should be able to get that either repaired or replaced or you can return that product. There's a manu there's a, a, an overlap and a bit of confusion around the operation of our rights under consumer law in Australia, but also the operation of manufacturers' warranties. So what's interesting is when we buy a fridge, for example, we would expect... Um, in our parents' generation, our fridges would last for 20 or 30 or 40 years. Or now longer. we're lucky. Or longer, that's right. But now we're lucky if we're getting five or seven years from a fridge. But interestingly, the manufacturers only provide a one or two year warranty. So there is this, um, and this has been recognised by the Productivity Commission, there's a lot of work to be done with product lifespan 
and an understanding of manufacturer's warranty and also how our consumer rights work when a big item like a fridge can't be fixed because often the faults happen in year three or four outside that warranty period and the manufacturers won't support it. So um, this is a really significant issue that we're engaging with government about. Leanne, is there, I guess, a, a bit of a thirst for changing the legislation in that case if you are speaking to government? Yes, there certainly is. We had wow. in 2021, the Productivity Commission um, did a fantastic inquiry around the barriers to repair in Australia. And they did identify the same things that you've mentioned in your introduction, skills training, but also these physical, physical and, and legal barriers to repairability. And there's a whole raft of recommendations. So they sit around getting your car repaired, getting our tractors fixed for our farmers, but also medical device repair as well. So these issues aren't just in consumer electronics and appliances, mm. but across a whole range of industry. So there's a whole raft of great recommendations sitting with government at the moment that we're really hoping will progress. And a repairability label that you mentioned is one um, that's really low-hanging fruit, that when you go to purchase a product, you get some information at the point of sale about whether you'll be able to get access to spare parts or repair information. Um, right at the point of sale. The French have done it and the European Union is looking at doing the same thing. Leanne, thank you so much for your time this morning. Leanne Wiseman is Professor in Law at Griffith University, Chair of the Australian Repair Network. On the line, Cassandra in Footscray. Cassandra, are you having hassles with a fridge? Yes, we purchased a fridge um, uh, seven years ago for $3,500, which was a significant investment. And we purchased it with a 10-year warranty um, and it's you know it's on the door, and we we thought that was reasonable, and and then our fridge just stopped working about uh, four months ago, or oh, three months ago, sorry. And at that time, we contacted LG, which was the manufacturer, and they said to us, "Oh no, well you're not protected unless it's the converter or the inverter or something like that." And we said, "Well, we need somebody to come out and fix this fridge. It's you know it's seven years in, and and it's we need to have it repaired." It took nearly four days and they said they had one repairer the entire state of Victoria and that repairer didn't have availability to come out for two or three weeks. Um, and when they finally did come out, they said, we can't work out what's wrong with it. You need to pay us $300 for a motherboard to find out what's wrong with the fridge. So we paid the $300 for the motherboard and then they said, oh, it's the fridge door that's not working. You need to pay us $800 to replace the fridge door. And I said, well, is it what part of the fridge door is not working? And they said, oh, we don't know. But if you pay us the $800, then we'll know what's wrong with the fridge door. But it's not covered under your warranty. But if I, yeah, if I get that repairer, if I go to some other repair and try and get a better price, um, then I voided the other 10-year warranty it's supposed to be on the major thing, and I, so we've just we've put it we've put a stop to it at that point. So yeah, and I can't say I'm surprised. I mean, Cassandra, that just sounds absolutely infuriating. What a runaround to get. I uh, had a text in from James in Bensdale. James saying, "Look, we've got a lot of old appliances in the house, but when they die." They're going to go to landfill. There are no repairers left anymore. They've mostly all gone just to lack of work in our throwaway world. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. So where are those small appliance repairers? James just saying that there's nowhere around him on the text line to be able to go and get stuff repaired. Uh, On the line is Gabrielle. Gabrielle, good morning. Good morning. You are an appliance electrician. 
yes, appliance technician. Technician. What sort of work do you end up doing? Uh, we do a lot of repairs on uh, washing machines, ovens, fridges, uh, everything kitchen and laundry and some vacuum cleaners as well. And how difficult is it to do your job uh, these days with modern appliances? Uh, some appliances, I mean, we find that some manufacturers are uh, really helpful, provide good information, um, particularly when you have uh, computers that you plug in to do diagnostics um, and such. Others uh, really can be really difficult to deal with. Um, and they won't, you know, it's difficult to even get someone on the phone or just to um, answer, uh, you know, an email. So what sort of difficulties is, you know, because we're hearing stories about things that are difficult to open or parts aren't around or just deliberately designed in a way that makes it hard to repair. I mean, are you seeing things like that? Uh, we did find, uh, particularly over COVID, that uh, some parts were difficult to get um, and some, a lot of parts were just simply on back order. Um, you know, it's difficult to know what happens behind the scenes with manufacturers. We we, you know, we rely on manufacturers um, and other parts suppliers to bring parts in. Um, it has been, you know, we go through stages where, uh, you know, um, shipping does take, can take a long time. And, um, and sometimes, you know, part, like some parts are just taking longer to manufacture. Uh, and also becoming more expensive as well. And, and Gabrielle, just because I'm very interested about this, how do people get in touch with you? Are you kind of are they reporting back to the manufacturer, and the manufacturer is uh, contracting you, or are you a repairer where people are calling you direct and getting you to come out? Uh, we deal mostly with direct. However, we do um, we do warranty work for a number of manufacturers um, where we'll come as a third party. Gabrielle, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for getting in touch. I really appreciate it. Also on the line, Lisa in Kingsville. Lisa, good morning. Oh, good morning. Yes, I'd like to tell you the story of my mother was a great cook and in the 70s she bought a stick blender, uh-huh. a Swiss-made one, and uh, when she died I inherited it and it wasn't working and I took it to a, a repair cafe, which are wonderful things that happen in many suburbs, um, and the, the guy opened it up and he just moaned with delight at how beautifully it was made and uh, he just sort of blew it out um, and he said, look, there's nothing wrong with this. It turned out it was just the external cord. He changed the cord and I've been using it ever since. So that is a very old appliance, but beautifully made, able to be opened, um, you know, obviously with Swiss um, technology from way back then. Isn't it gorgeous to know that something was built to last? And of course, you know, yes. the, the, there's an emotional thing for you there, but also it just sounds like a really good appliance. Exactly, and they're so rare. Whether they're still made in Switzerland, I don't know, but I would doubt it. But uh, quality, it was expensive at the time, but it was worth it. Lisa, I'm glad you found a repair for it. And we will be talking more about repair cafes later this morning. They are a fascinating way for people to, uh, I guess, get the jump on some of that landfill, uh, find that sort of way of bringing back items and a little bit of knowledge share as well. Now, Leanne Wiseman before mentioned that Australia is kind of lagging a little bit when it comes to repairability, both in terms of what's allowed and also how we get our information about what can be repaired and what can't be. So if we're lagging, who's doing it well? At the start of 2021, the French government kicked off a repairability index, certainly aimed at helping consumers, helping you and I make decisions. It's also pushing a little bit of competition 
back into the market. Now, John Gatsakis is an adjunct professor with the Institute for Sustainable Futures. He's the co-founder of the E-Waste Watch Institute. And John, I understand you've been quite heavily involved with that French Repairability Index and how it's been working. Good morning, Nick. Yes, in terms of uh, connecting with the bureaucrats in France that have been involved with designing that scheme, it's really been quite a a positive experience. Uh, It just shows what's possible when you've got the right policy settings that encourage uh, manufacturers to design for repairability, but then also empower consumers and inform consumers to make better choices. So the French model uh, is a really, really good template for Australia to look at and adjust and apply sooner rather than later. John, my understanding of the French model started quite simply to get people on board and has expanded over a couple of years, but I guess what's the basis of it? What is it trying to do and what are consumers seeing? What it's trying to do is, as I mentioned, drive design improvement of those products, but create a standard where there are some specific criteria that look at what's the documentation available and the instruction manuals for service and repair. How easy is that product to disassemble? What are the tools required? What's the spare parts availability? What's the spare parts price as a ratio between the price of those parts and the price of the product? So it's really trying to stimulate better design and production of, uh, of products, be they smartphones, laptops, washing machines, etc., but then make sure that that's effectively communicated to consumers at, at, the, at, the, at the purchase moment. When they're looking at products, comparing a smartphone and its repairability rating, a laptop and the same. So they can make more informed choices. So you've got a combination of compelling manufacturers to apply this standard and report on it, but then equipping consumers to make better choices. And it really is, and it's something that's quite significant. The EU is likely to adopt that and roll it out across the EU and then evolve it into a durability uh, index as such. So this isn't new in many respects, Nick. Uh, And that's why Australia needs to get the right policy settings, uh, regulate where necessary, um, but to do that in a way that's targeted and look at specific products. And as you said, the French started off with a few products and they're rolling that out across other electrical and electronic uh, uh, equipment. And of course, arguably, you know, something like that allows the market to reward people who are doing the right thing around repairability. Consumers, I think, would naturally sort of spend their money on something that has a high repairability index. It is. And look, this is a great example of where business often says, we listen to the market. Uh, We'll give the market what it wants. Uh, And it's just phenomenal, the tsunami of interest and appetite in repair in Australia. Uh, whether it's the spawning of repair cafes nationally, uh, whether it's acknowledging the role of repair and reuse and durability as part of achieving a circular economy, whether it's the role of repair in, in terms of a company being a good product steward. So if that's the case, the time really is right uh, for that to happen. And uh, you know, if you look at what you know, Leanne mentioned earlier, the Productivity Commission and its recommendations, we're talking about some of the most conservative group of ex- economists in, in the solar system, and they recommended that Australia uh, pursue the development and trialling and assessment of a star rating for products. So I think you know, the, the time's right. We've just got to stop dragging the chain on this, both from a policy and regulatory perspective, listen to the market, but then also use that to look at the opportunities and help manufacturers drive the redesign of products, uh, whether they're designing offshore or locally, um, you get the right policy settings, regardless of where it's designed and made, to enter the market in Australia, they'll need to comply. And this is evidenced by the Energy Star rating, 
scheme, the water efficiency labelling star rating scheme. So it's doable. We just need uh, some fortitude here in terms of getting the policy settings right. And is that how a repairability rating would look like? Would you imagine sort of Australian consumers seeing it as like a star rating or a number out of 10 or something like that? Something easy to understand? It It is. And I think this is where there is value in learning from the French, learning from others in the EU, but not necessarily, you know, mimicking that. We need to design a program without you know, reinventing the wheel, but design a program that works for Australia, for our context, for our consumers. And so that may mean about trialling it. But you know, there's a lot to learn from the Energy Star ratings and the Wells ratings for water efficiency in terms of what works. Those programs have been evaluated year on year in terms of consumer understandability and uptake. They've evolved over a couple of decades, if not longer. So whether it's star rating, a number score, an A, B, C, D, etc., you know, informing consumers is really, really important. You know, you need to drive the the brands and the manufacturers to do the right thing, but then that has to be effectively communicated to those purchasing the product at the time of purchase, and then all of that follow-up activity in terms of services, as you've heard from your callers. You know, it, it's it's about getting repair back into the high street um, and making it straightforward at a competitive price. You know, so these things are really important. And repair is one of the first responders. If we're talking about, uh, you know, waste reduction and a circular economy, we need to go beyond recycling. And this is about prevention, not about chasing ambulances at the bottom of the cliff. John, thank you so much for your insights. John Sarkis, who is an adjunct professor at the UTS Institute for Sustainable Futures, as I said, also the co-founder of the E-Waste Watch Institute. On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. On the text line, Linda in Albert Park saying at Woodford Folk Festival, they actually had a workshop on how to fix electrical items. So looking at things like drills and toasters, it was for kids. We need more of these for everyone. Repair cafes are an amazing thing, Linda. We're going to talk a little bit more about them a bit later this morning. James in Dalesford. James, you've uh, tried to get a toaster repaired recently. Yeah, it was funny enough, it was just yesterday. I took a very expensive Italian toaster and a uh, English kettle in to a repair shop that's been there for years in Ballarat, and they've repaired lots of things for us. But both of them, a simple thing like an element in one and a switch on the other, they were saying the manufacturers won't provide them with the uh, the items, and the manufacturer's view is you've got to throw them out. And, you know, these were multiple hundreds of dollars worth of stuff, and they weren't that old. So, yeah, the guy saying that, yes, if you're going to import you must, uh, you know, agree to replace elements because all it was is an element. Uh, I agree with. I think it's, it's a, a real issue with the manufacturers. Well, that's so frustrating. I mean, it should it mm. should be a simple repair, surely? Yeah. Well, that's it. It's the first time these people have ever not been able to do something, and they've repaired, you know, video recorders <laughs> and all these sorts of things for us for years. That's what their business is about. But with something simple like that, because those two brands, and they said some of them are like this. Those two brands will not rep- will not provide uh, um, equipment. Now I, we're going to take it further and get onto those people because yeah, we just actually we've had their people rep- repair a, a very expensive oven which we got from that brand. Um, but because it's in warranty, they've been coming backwards and forwards, and they've been doing a great job. But when they they're due to come back soon, I was going to say to them, "Well, is there any way we can get an element for this toaster?" So take just, take just it further, crazy. absolutely take it further. And James, it's kind of relieving to know that there are still small appliance repairers in major kind of metro, uh, sorry, regional city centres getting that work done. Graham in Bendigo, Graham, you're a watchmaker. That's correct. Yes. Are, um, are you being affected yeah. by this right to repair? Is it impacting uh, your work? 
Look, it is. Uh, the major, many of the major companies now simply refuse to supply parts outright, um, and that is a major problem. If I could just give you a quick uh, potted history. Please. Uh, about 18 months ago, the um, Productivity Commission did an inquiry in the right to repair, and it wasn't just watchmaking, it covered tractors, it covered all the electronic goods you've been talking about. But to, uh, basically it came down to their recommendation was that the ACCC should look into the watch industry because we are so badly affected now. Uh, obviously, they considered us the prime case where the, the restriction on parts is really impacting not only on us, our business, but on the public. Because if you buy a good quality Swiss watch, and if you if you walk along Collins Street, you'll see all the watch, the, the very, very expensive mm -hmm. watches there. There's three major companies. Uh, only one will supply parts uh, for our industry. Most of them just restrict them and say no. So the consumer is tied to that to that brand for any repairs that they may need. Uh, Graham, for your day-to-day -day work, does that mean you're turning people away, saying I can't work on that uh, watch? How are you working around that? Uh, no, we have to turn people away all the time. <sighs> yeah, Probably, look, if I'm not exaggerating, if I was to say we turn away about 50% of the people that come through the door. Graham, that is just so frustrating um, and a remarkable thing to hear that it's impacting on something that I guess with no knowledge of it myself, I would have assumed that a, a watch repair was just watch repair, not, not to mean easy, but something that could be done right across brands. And look, it's been interesting because we're, we're talking about the ability to get something repaired like smartphones, TVs, cars. We've been really talking about small appliances. But this issue, this right to repair isn't just affecting small things. For years now, the farming community has been pushing for their right to repair tractors, other ag equipment. We're talking about essential gear that can be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, Zachary Whale runs the policy and advocacy team for the Grain Growers Group. And Zachary, broken farm equipment, it's not a nuisance. It can cause an entire operation to grind to a halt. Absolutely. Even last week, some GPS satellites uh, had issues and we, we found farmers... Um, having to, to, to stop planting uh, one of the most critical uh, parts of the farming operation because something wasn't working. So this machinery is highly sophisticated nowadays. It's highly technologically advanced. And if you can't get it working when you need it, um, that is not only a headache or a nuisance, but um, it can have significant financial impacts on the business. I think that's a really important point you're making. Like farming, um, it is a high-tech industry these days. It is a data-hungry industry these days. There are a lot of points of failure with that. But I guess in terms of that uh, machinery repair, where's been the big issue over the years? Yeah, so if you rewind to, to when things were, were, were much more mechanical and had a lot less computer um, integration, there was probably more ability for really handy farmers on farm to actually pull things apart and fix them, and farmers still do that to some extent. Um, you know, almost every farmer out of necessity has to be a, a mechanic to a degree. Um, but as the technological um, advancements have occurred, and, and as you mentioned, all of that um, data that's now built in, the ability to diagnose a problem, um, or in fact the problem itself, might pull that machine um, to, to, a, to a standstill. So similar to you know, certain things in a car, um, when a certain sensor is triggered, uh, when a certain error comes through, that car is immobilised. It's similar 
uh, for farming equipment. And so what what generally happens now is an authorised repairer has to come to the property. They will then run diagnostics. Then they will probably need parts that they don't have. Then they'll have to go back to a, a main city where those parts are and then come back to the farm a second time, which equals... Um, you know, not only money that the farmer has to has to pay for those call-outs, but also considerable time. And more often than not, it's the time, you know, that is the biggest impact here. So a- agriculture, especially grain farming, is, is really time-sensitive. So, you know, when the optimum moisture is in the ground and, and the optimum time to plant a crop comes, you want to be able to operate, in some instances, 24 hours a day until that planting job's finished. And at the other end of the year, when the crop is ripe, you want to get that crop off um, before those round, those rain clouds come overhead or before, you know, a big wind event occurs. And so if, if the header uh, is parked in the paddock while you're waiting three days for a technician to come to diagnose a problem and then waiting another three days for the part to be dispatched, then for the technician to come back, that is huge. So right to repair in that context is, you know, how can we actually give the farmer greater freedom? How can they run some of those diagnostics on farm, or how can an independent repairer um, who might be closer actually do that and then get the parts dispatched and, and cut the middleman, if you like, um, mm. so that that's so that that can be sped up. And, and Zachary, I know this isn't just limited to Australia. I know there's been a big international movement. I know US farmers have been fighting on this for a very, very long time. But you kind of named it. It's a tyranny of distance to a large degree. I mean, when someone's coming to repair your header, it's not, you know, Jiffy Lube or Lube Mobile or whatever turning up 30 minutes or it's free. We're talking about long distances just to come and find out what's wrong. Long, long distances. And I think what COVID really showed is, you know, how long our supply chain is. For a long time, our international supply chains have worked relatively well and we've been able to get what we need, but often manufacturers want to hold less and less inventory and the distance to the genuine manufacturer of that critical component could be North America, um, Europe or, or parts of Asia. Australia is around 2% of the, of the world machinery market and, and so as a result, generally speaking, we're getting the components from, from somewhere else. Um, and also we've got worker shortages now. Mm. So, you know, that, that's cafes in inner city contexts and almost every profession. It's also mechanics um, and agricultural engineers and, and, and service technicians with really specialty experience. So when, when those worker shortages are also felt in the bush and generally farmers all need the same thing at the same time, it really compounds into a big issue. Because this is turning into like things working together. You know, if you don't have diagnostic access, you have to wait for the technician. But even if you do, do you have someone near you with that skill set to come and do those repairs, even if you are allowed to use an independent repairer? It's a really good point. I think when you speak to farmers, the first thing um, that they'll mention is that it's not just farm labour that's lacking. Um, It's the, the barista in the local cafe. It's the mechanic's. Um, in, in the local workshop, it's the lack of apprentices that are signing up. So that, that is an issue and right to repair doesn't fully solve, you know, um, scarce labour in regional communities. But I guess what, what that issue highlights is you have to make, uh, you know, the, the resources that are available deployed in the most efficient way possible um, because it's scarce. And if that means the farmer running some diagnostics and then being able to say to the dealership, I know what the problem is, it's X and I need this part, you know, when can you get out here? If that means, you know, a service technician, you know, saves one trip, that's probably going to help the industry in aggregate. Zachary, in terms of changes to to the regulation around this, in terms of changes that are going to be positive for farming community, are we seeing a bit of movement? 
Look, we, we certainly are. You mentioned the US earlier. So, you know, the, the right to repair movement in the main sort of came out of, of US agriculture and, and, and Australian farmers certainly, um, you know, have, have voiced their concerns as well. We saw the ACCC um, do, do a study in, in, in 2021. Um, the Productivity Commission did a review um, later, later in the year. And both of those things point to a need for opening up the access to, to diagnostics and also opening up the rights um, to, to spare parts. Um, and then also more information from the manufacturers in terms of, you know, when spare parts will be available and how long they'll be available for. Um, and, and then finally, almost the idea of, of improved interoperability so different brands can work together um, more harmoniously the best example you know the the, the apple charger doesn't work with <laughs> you know with the android i mean it, it's similar to that so they're the sorts of recommendations that we've been seeing from the ACCC and the productivity commission we've got a new government um, at the federal level um, we've got uh, an assistant competition minister andrew lee who's really keen to see some advancements in this space so you know organizations like grain growers um, with the support of, of organizations like the National Farmers Federation are certainly having these discussions with government to see what might be possible. In the US context, we've seen a few things. We've seen an, a memorandum of understanding between John Deere uh, and the US Farm Bureau, mm -hmm. and we're also seeing state-based legislation come through. So Colorado's got some legislation that, you know, that, that's before their parliament um, that actually enshrines some of this. Now, the answer's a little bit of both. Um, we believe that legislation certainly has a role and that you know, these quite legal um, consumer protection frameworks should include um, agriculture and, and broad right to repair uh, frameworks uh, that would impact things like watches to toasters and microwaves. You know, those frameworks, you know, should be extended to agriculture. Sometimes agriculture, because of its sheer value, doesn't get included in, in, in other standard consumer protection law, which is a kind of interesting concept because the machinery is so expensive, you would almost think that they should have more consumer protections, but sometimes they actually have less. Um, which now, would be incredibly I mean, frustrating across the board. Zachary, apologies, we will leave it there, but um, Zachary is the policy and advocacy team leader for the Grain Growers Group. Zachary, really appreciate that sort of, uh, I guess, perspective, taking it away from just the, the appliances we've been thinking about and showing what it's going to impact on terms of big businesses like farming. Karen on the text line, what about all these chargeable battery products? The battery's end of life means the product ends its life. It's nearly impossible to find a replacement battery or model. New batteries seem to incompatible why isn't this changing as well it's a really really good question on abc radio melbourne and victoria this is the conversation hour now a few times this morning while we've been talking about right to repair you've had a few people mention the car industry and how it was able to take just a couple of steps on this right to repair journey mandated data sharing which makes it possible for independent mechanics to do repairs not just the repairers that your manufacturer wants to nominate Stuart Charity, Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Automotive Aftermarket Association. Stuart, what difference has that legislation made to the industry? Oh, look, it's made a massive difference, Nick. Um, it uh, came into effect in uh, from the 1st of July last year and, and, it, and it effectively means that it's against the law for any car company not to share repair and service information with independent repairers. So, um, we had a situation you know, for, for many years where... Uh, um, car companies were, were withholding that information, tools, uh, in some cases parts, and, and, and directing consumers through their authorised dealership networks. And, and as cars got more technically, technically complex, it was going to uh, 
almost be death by a thousand cuts for the 30,000 independent mechanical and collision repairers that are out there in Australia. How hard was it to get that change across the line? Oh, enormously hard. It was a it was a twelve year campaign. Uh, we used precedences from, from from Europe and the US, and and the automotive industry has been a bit of a leader in in the right to repair because it's a, a a consumer product. It's expensive, and it needs that regular repair and maintenance. So it's kind of front and center in in um, in government uh, eyes. But uh, even even though we had uh, precedent internationally, it still took us ten years. Ten, uh, we went ten through years. <laughs> yes. We went through two um, competition uh, reviews, so one by the ACCC and, and, and one by another. We had a voluntary agreement um, that, that didn't work and was never going to work because the, the simple fact is that the car companies make far more money out of selling parts than they do out of uh, selling cars. So, you know, there's a commercial imperative for them to, to, to keep that parts business um, uh, within their networks and the service business, um, and, and they had the technolo- technological advantage to be able to do it. Now, I got Alan on the text line saying, "Look, I used to work for a mechanic, and I remember that there were luxury cars. You could only work on them with specialised tools that had to be hired from a manufacturer. They'd only give them out to qualified, certified mechanics. It sounds like it was a, a pretty difficult situation." Well, that's right, and and you know that uh, the, the, the luxury cars, the, the <laughs> technology that that was that was on those a few years ago is on mainstream cars now, and you know the, the technology is just running ahead at, at, at breakneck speed. So. With every model year and every new vehicle coming out, it was getting harder and harder without that uh, electronic access. I mean, cars now have, uh, have software. You have to code parts into vehicles. Um, so without that uh, manufacturer approval, you, you, you're pretty well cut out and you can't work on modern vehicles. And, and that was going to be catastrophic for Australian consumers because you lose choice, you lose yeah. competition, and prices go up. Stuart, how hard is it for a mechanic to keep on top of all of these changes? I mean, if you've done your, I guess, qualification many, many years ago, it sounds like you're having to read and study and just work overtime to make sure you're on top of the next iteration. Well, exactly right. And then you overlay that in the Australian context. You know, we've got over 50 different car manufacturers selling cars in Australia, and then now we've got different technologies. So we've got electric vehicles coming in, we've got hybrid vehicles. Um, So it is a, a really challenging profession these days um there's a lot of systems that that, that catalog information and and, and um and assist mechanics to, to be able to get the the right part and the right information but um you know if, if we can't get it from the vehicle manufacturers in the first place then then we we've got the systems in place to be able to distribute it and and, and make it um uh, accessible for mechanics i mean diagnostic tools often do multi-brands and, and so on oh. but you need the source information coming from the vehicle manufacturers and if you don't have that uh, then you're pretty well cut out of the whole process. And Stuart, since the changes got made to the industry, you know, I can't imagine it's been entirely plain sailing. Has there been sort of a few hiccups on the way or has it been mostly okay? Look, there has been a few hiccups. Um, yeah, it's a it's a massive step mm. change in the industry. As I say, we're trying to corral 60 different car brands with, with multiple models. You've got... Uh, uh, it's not only repair information, but it's 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 security related information. So people you know, lose their keys, need to get keys recoded. We need access to security systems on vehicles, so you've got to have some checks and balances in in place there. So we've had to set up a whole platform. Um, the biggest area we've got at the moment is with diagnostic tools. Um, so that yeah, they're obviously you've got the the, the car company branded one, but often you'll have uh, an aftermarket tool that that, that will do multiple brands and, and getting access for gateways and technical locks and, and that sort of thing is still a bit of a work in progress for it. 
for us. But um, the, the thing that we've got on our side now is before um, we were relying on the goodwill of the car industry, um, uh, we now, uh, which we didn't see a lot of, um, we're, we're now, um, uh, it's basically a $10 million fine or up to $10 million oh, wow. fine if, if, if you don't um, comply with the law. And, and we've got, there's a unit within the actual C that, that uh, oversees uh, the operation of the law. So um, we've got a lot more bargaining power now, let's, let's just say. So uh, yeah. currently, uh, you know, a car company that's doing the wrong thing, the threat of referral to the ACCC for investigation is, is starting to uh, uh, heed results. Stuart, that's an incredible bit of there. I mean, because you're right, you've got regulation on your side now. It's not just about you having to say, hey, please do the right thing. Stuart Charity, Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Automotive Aftermarket Association. Stepping away from the cars, from the tractors, from the farm machinery and everything else, and back to those smaller items, household appliances and gadgets, where do you go to repair those? Someone mentioning earlier that there was actually a repairer still on the street of their town, but many people, one option, increasingly popular option, are repair cafes. It's certainly an international movement. Volunteers coming together, offering their skills to help repair electronics, mechanical items, clothes, and much, much more. Now, John Allel is the coordinator of the St Kilda Repair Cafe. John, good morning. How often does your group get together? How often are you running the repair cafe? Uh, once a month, every second Sunday of the month, usually, anyway, uh, except for January. And what happens there? What, what goes on at a repair cafe? Well, basically, uh, we have a group of volunteers uh, who volunteer their skills. And anything you can you know, bring in, uh, we'll give it a go to repair it and um, do the best we can either to you know, repair it on the spot or advise you what uh, spares you need or, or where you can get uh, items uh, that, that, that are necessary to complete the repair. So I guess who's coming along? What sort of items are being brought? Tell me sort of what how a day runs. Um, okay. Uh, by far the largest uh, cohort or, or category, if you like, of um, repairs that we get is electronic or electrical items and household electrical goods. Um, because, you know, what's happened, of course, is there's, is there's been this culture that's developed where Items have become so cheap in mm. that category that, that uh, people, you know, don't think of repairing them. They just sort of, you know, it breaks down, you throw it away and you buy another one. Um, and, uh, and the difficulty there, of course, is that every item uses up resources that we uh, can uh, not really afford to lose. And um, repairing them means that they can be safe from landfill. So for those... Uh, most mostly we can repair them. Um, it just requires the expertise, and it requires uh, a knowledge that um, you can actually repair things. I mean, you know, I come from a generation where that was quite the norm. You know, you you took things apart, you repaired them, and and kept them for years and years and years. But of course, that's not good for manufacturers' profits, and so you know. Built an obsolescence. Is, <laughs> but, is but you're right. It's a change that's happened in our lifetimes. I mean, it's a change that I've seen since I was a kid. Of course, you used to spend a bit more on these appliances, but the idea was that they would be with you for a longer time and you could drop them off at the shop and pick them up a day or two later, ready to roll again if anything went wrong. Exactly, exactly. And um, uh, the other problem, I suppose, with this change in culture is, is that people have lost the ability to know how to do this sort of thing and um you know whereas i grew up as i say just just with those sorts of skills sort of interested me uh, 
you know, I get things that are, that are really simple. I mean, I, you know, occasionally you get things and it takes you about 10 seconds to sort the problem out. Um, and it's just lack of knowledge, you know, that people have, it, which is staggering. I, you know, I'm often kind of amazed at, um, you know, how little people know about, about how to fix something that, that, that is apparently broken and often isn't broken at all. It just needs a bit of adjustment. But it's hard to know where to go and learn those skills even. It's not something we pick up at home the way we might have, say, certainly in a farming community, that basic repair uh, knowledge would have been innate. You would have learnt that from grandparents and parents. Yeah, very true. Um, I mean, the sort of volunteers we have are, are often professionals, you know, ex engineers or um, electrical engineers or, um, you know, computer specialists and so on. So, you know, they're just interested in offering their time uh, in, in order to stop things going to landfill um, or for other reasons. Uh, and um, they've got the skills, if you like. Uh, but one of the things that we insist on is that people stay with the repairer whilst the um, repair is going on. Because we really feel that the, this is an educational process as much as anything else. And we want people to see, not that they can necessarily do it themselves, but we want them to see that there is a process that, they, that we go through that um, enables things to be repaired. And just to create a different sort of attitude, if you like, to, to um, uh, you know, the value of, 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 of items. Um, so that's, that's, yeah, that's part of our philosophy. And it's a good philosophy. John, thank you so much. John coordinates the St Kilda Repair Cafe. Many people on the text line suggesting look up repair cafes. There's one in many suburbs. There's one in a lot of towns. And in fact, Claire O'Connor is one of the coordinators at the Ballarat Repair Cafe. Claire, good morning to you. Good morning, Nick. How are you? How many people come through with items to be repaired when you run one of your cafes? Um, we would probably have in a three-hour session an average of around 30 people coming through. Um, and of those, I'd say we're probably successful in repairing maybe 60% on average. I mean, that's not a bad statistic. That seems like a pretty good hit rate to me. Yeah, but that, that, that's yeah. a lot of people. It, it is, it is. And we get we do get a number of um, repeat um, clients coming through. But, and I think slowly word spreads that yeah, there is this place you can go because as many of your um, guests and callers have said, there just isn't um, a lot of places out there that, are able to do repairs anymore. There's not. And I, I know that you would, I assume rather, that you get a mix of people who, A, financially having this repaired is something very important. It's not easy for them to be able to throw it out and replace it. But also people, yeah. as John was saying, with a bit of a ecological bent to it. They don't want to see this just go Absol- to waste. Yeah, ab- absolutely. We get, um, I'd, I'd say, yeah, our, um, our visitors are probably split 50-50 between the two. Um, and it's it's great to see people so passionate about it. Um, and when we can't repair an item, um, at least it allows them to throw it out with uh, at least a bit of a better conscience. Oh, they've done their best to try, but it's it's such a shame to see things go landfill. Look, it is. And you're so right, though. The certainty of knowing we have done everything we can, you know, the, the, that would be a relief for a lot of people. But in yeah. terms of the people repairing, who do you find is there as your volunteers? Um, most of our volunteers are retirees or getting on towards retirement. Um, they have, um, people who did grow up in a much more repair, um, um, environment, I guess, where that was, that was what they learnt from their mums and dads and, um, that picked up those skills. I would say uh, one of our concerns as an ongoing organisation, and I'm sure all repair cafes face this, 
is um, you know those those people can't keep coming endlessly, mm. and how do we maintain our future by training up people, which is one of the lovely things about um, watching one of our sessions is seeing um, different repairers who have different skills sharing their knowledge and and the excitement that they have of sharing it and others have of learning from them. Because this really runs the risk of being an entirely lost skill. We, you know, we, 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 we need people to come along and learn these because there's nowhere else people are grabbing these basic skills. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And even we're finding um, with electrical equipment to be tested and tagged before it can be used, we're finding it difficult to find organisations that will train people with. We have some funds that we'd like to put towards training for our volunteers, um, but we're so it's just difficult to find people who can even teach those skills of you know, how do you make sure you're a piece of electrical equipment safe in the first place. Well, Claire, I think you're doing an incredible job with that and I'm just loving the fact that you are working on making sure that those skills move on to that next generation as well. It's a big thank you to everyone who got in touch today. Thanks for listening. We're going to talk tomorrow.